The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome to The Deal with Yield with our host, Joel Whipperforth, Director of Ag Technology for Winfield United, and John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. Today, we're taking some of the questions we've received from farmers across the country at this year's Commodity Classic trade show. Joel, to get things started, what did you think of this year's show? Any key takeaways? Yeah, so Commodity Classic this year, being in California, the equipment companies all had to haul their stuff across the mountains, but yet they all showed up. Yeah, it all fit in the show, no problem. And uh, one of the things that was interesting is all the basic manufacturers were there. Of course, they've started to pare down. Dow DuPont was there as Corteva. And one of the things I thought was interesting is the equipment companies are offering more sensors on equipment. And so we always talk about, you know, the Internet of Things and IoT and sensors everywhere. Well, there's sensors on the shank for your cultivator now to measure compaction and soil ride. And just like there was on your planter for the last five years of what's the good ride and how bumpy is it. And now there's new sensors like organic matter on pieces of equipment. So you can really see the digital side of the equipment industry and the agriculture industry really changing. Okay, let's dive into the first question. Todd from South Dakota asks, what are all the mergers in ag going to mean for producers? Well, I think it's interesting times that we're living in. When you look at the last six months, there's $400 billion, billion with a B, $400 billion worth of assets that have changed hands. And that goes anywhere from Nutrien, Potash Corp, and Agrium coming together to Dow DuPont coming together as Corteva. That doesn't include the proposed merger of Bayer and Monsanto coming together. But what really is interesting after the mergers is every one of the four basic manufacturers will have a seed and a crop protection play for the majority of the largest row crops and crops in the country. It'll be interesting how the mergers shape up towards offering a full bundled package for the farm, or if companies that don't offer seed will be able to come in and pull those packages apart and do that. It also stands to play that a lot of these basic manufacturers are getting into the, the business of offering digital farm solutions. Syngenta has a play, Corteva has a play, Monsanto through Climate has a play, Bayer has a play, and all of these companies have a digital solution, have a seed solution, have a CPP solution, and a biotech trait breeding solution. So total farm solution, I think, is one of the things that potential mergers bring about. So I agree. The total farm solution piece, Joel, is probably real. But is the question that I always ask about it, is that really what the farmers want? Do we want a total farm solution from one company? A lot of times we'll see that we're using products and we're trying to get the best product for the best part of the acre. And we're using products from those four platform companies or whatever platform companies that we're buying from to try to make that best fit for the acre. So the value of that was maybe you don't have to have the total farm solution from one company, but you'll have a lot more options and a lot more looks at that total farm solution and how you want to put together a package for your acre. Yeah, I think that's one of the unique places that Winfield United has in this is to play the best in class. And one of the examples out of this year, I mean, you experienced this this year with the answer plots looking at fungicide data. We actually ran some of the newer fungicides against each other and we found a product that performed a little bit better 
in certain environments. And some of the insights that you had from that on fungicide performance, that's an example of where you still have to have somebody sorting these things out. Yeah, so through the answer plots, we can have the ability to look at those different products and hopefully pick out some of the differences. And I think that's what you're going to have to look for with these mergers coming together. What are the differences and how can we be concerned that they're going to be managed upon our acres? And what are some of the decisions that can be made from that? Yeah, the other thing that I see in some of these mergers coming through is they're becoming part of companies that aren't just agricultural. And so maybe there's some opportunity for additional innovation that comes across from a biomedical field that the parent company is involved in that we get benefited from in ag. Maybe there's opportunity of tools that they're using digitally in a consumer presence that we can use some of that core technology in agriculture. So there is an opportunity there as the parent companies of these mergers are involved in other business verticals to gain some access to innovation that ag only couldn't access prior getting into something that uh, has been talked about a ton in our industry, dicamba. Janice from Tennessee asks, do you think dicamba will be used long-term or will it be banned because of volatility? So I guess uh, I'm going to answer that one first, Joel. I'll take a poke at it. And I think we'll be okay with dicamba. I have more of the look of the, the glasses half full on dicamba and that outlook. To, uh, hopefully we can get around this volatility piece. And and really reflecting upon that question, I look at uh, you know where we were just a year or two years ago when we were just talking about dicamba. Last year, we got to experience it for the first time. And this year, where we're at, knowing the label restrictions, knowing the extra trainings we have to do, understanding uh, volatility temperature inversions, different conditions, I think is going to help us out in the future. And then the other comment on that is, is it going to be banned from volatility? Well, maybe there's some things coming down the line and and the way that we use and know dicamba today is going to change by the way we know and use dicamba tomorrow. So I think there's a a couple components there with dicamba that uh, it is a great technology. We definitely need it, but we have to figure out its place and how to use it for the future. Yeah. So if you knew what I knew, you'd think like I do. So I want to get a chance at that, John. One of the things I see coming on dicamba here is there's additional trait stacks being added to soybeans in the future, what they call uh, HT3, and that includes Liberty and Roundup and dicamba. How do you think that changes the long-term use of the time of year, the weed spectrums, and the different modes of action that farmers choose when. So it allows you to manage the different herbicides within that application and say, hey, if you need to do a blanket application of dicamba, you can still have a couple more options in the back pocket to manage those weeds in season. If you got to get it down before a a certain time or if the temperature or the wind ain't quite right, you can still be able to kill those weeds at that right time. So the different platforms that might be coming are are definitely something to talk about. And like I said, it'll change the way that we maybe think about dicamba today. What about sprayable days? I know that's always one of the things, you know, if the wind's out of the wrong direction, it's harder to spray some of the chemistries. Would you take a lesser percent control on a day when you had the opportunity to spray, but it wasn't perfect? Would you choose a different chemistry then? What's the perfect spray day look like, John? What what was your question again, Joel? (laughs) 
So, so the perfect spray day, I mean, if you go through and, and I mean, everybody's kind of done that thing of looking at the airport weather and then saying, well, the airport weather with this wind speed and this temperature, how many days in June do I get to spray it? I mean, here in Minnesota, we're, we only get to June 20th, but in other places, we're not really restricted to a calendar date. We're more restricted to a growth stage. So that depends on a lot of things. But we do know that when you start looking at the weather information we have, we maybe only have days, sometimes just hours to spray that application of dicamba. So that would definitely be an ace in your back pocket that you could pull out and say, hey, my weeds are three to four inches tall today. I need to spray them. Maybe this isn't my best choice. I can use that another day. Let's go forward with the next tool in the toolbox. Yeah. So what about the fields where we've lost those tools? You, know, you talk about managing resistance and different modes of action. If you lose the tool in the toolbox, what do you do then? Grow corn? Grow corn. <laughs> That's that's probably as good an answer as any. Uh, well, when you have white mold, what do you do? You grow corn. Grow corn. Yeah. When you have BSR, what do you do? Grow corn. Okay. I like a good corn followed by snow rotation. That works well in Minnesota. Yeah. Moving on to another agronomic question. Richard from Delaware asks, do we still need to plant BT traded corn now that the corn borer pressure has subsided? So I look at corn borer pressure, and the first thing that I think about is, why has it subsided? And I look at that, and I go, well, probably because we've been using a lot of BT corn. In my area that I cover, I do have a lot of canning crops, sweet corn, that I look at. And we definitely still have a presence of BT of the corn borer in those crops. Also have a lot of conventional corn growing grain corn around the area for various different reasons, different markets in the area. And we definitely have a presence of corn borer in those crops as well. So I guess I would look at the use of BT technology. It's still going to be valuable. And you basically don't know you have corn borer until you don't use the technology. It's an epidemic. And as long as everybody's using BT, there is less opportunity for the epidemic to blow up. But I think about it like the flu season. You meet somebody with the flu and you don't get the flu. But if you meet three people with the flu, the likelihood is you're going to get the flu, right? And so they follow epidemic curves, not just a linear curve in how they blow up. And one of the things about corn borers is they come in off of the storms, and this isn't a pest that's overwintering for the most part in your crop. And so your opportunity to get this is different, not based on, you know, did I have it last year? You don't have the predictability around whether or not the pest is going to blow in on the storm. So I think, you know, John, you're familiar with the corn borer's life cycle a little bit. What's different about the corn borer's life cycle than the corn rootworm life cycle? So a lot of times the corn rootworms overwinter. Corn rootworms are a larvae below ground, so we have chewing going on. And then as they come up and they're an adult, they do lay eggs. And when they lay eggs, they're not specific in the location that they're laying those eggs. The difference there is with a corn borer, we can have two generations a year. That moth then breeds, and we're subjected to have that flight path happen again. Yeah, so from a scouting standpoint on corn borer moths, if you're driving just after dusk and you can see moths hitting your windshield, likelihood is there could be some corn borer moths out there. And it's important to keep in mind that that BT protein that the plant naturally produces, when a corn borer actually would take a bite out of that plant, that crystalline structure of that protein tends to lacerate the bug's gut from the inside, and they essentially dehydrate themselves to death. And sounds like a good way to go, right? But the key is, is you don't have to spray an insecticide that's maybe 60% effective on a good day, 
for corn borer. So having that protein built right into the plant in a genetic modification way is a really good way to not have to spray an insecticide that's 60% efficient. And scouting form isn't exactly all that desirable either. So you also bring up a good point with the insecticide and the way feeding is, Joel, and the epidemic portion. The thing is, is, is the insecticide application is never as good of an application as you'd ever like it to be. And most of the time, when you recognize that you have a corn borer problem, you got a corn borer problem. And a lot of times, the ability for you to go in and fix it, it's more of just a rescue at that point, and it's not necessarily going to be a good enough crop there to manage throughout the season. So having that BT protein allows us to protect from a lot of those epidemics that cause a crop failure. Yeah. So do you remember the movie Independence Day, John? Yes. Where the aliens were invading, and they had to grab every pilot that they possibly could, including Eddie from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and he was flying an F-16. Essentially, before BT proteins, this is what the flyboys would dream of, is getting all the planes together and doing an Independence Day-like alien strike to eradicate all corn borer moths. And it just never worked out the same way as when Will Smith did it in Independence Day. It just never worked out the same. So long story short, BT proteins are probably the best way to manage the epidemic of corn borers. And John from Minnesota asks, when is the best time to put fungicide on soybeans? So I think when you think about fungicide timing and applications, there's some important things to remember about how fungicides work. The preventative functions of fungicides are always better than the curative, which is to say, you know, an integrated pest management approach to fungicides doesn't always work. You can't always see the fungal pathogen and spray the fungal pathogen. That's actually kind of difficult to do because the ability of that fungicide comes from preventing the fungal and pathogen infestation in the first place. And so from a timing perspective, flowering is a key stage to impact the preventative ability of fungicides. That's one of the aspects of it. And so the second aspect is from a plant health that you can keep those plants photosynthesizing longer throughout the season, right? Mm -hmm. So I do think that that plant health application is very important on top of that fungicide protection that we're getting. So what I look for is is we got to be into flowering because that's really when we care about the yield in the soybean, right? A lot of times I look at the yield in the soybean, and most of the time, if we don't have flowers on the plant, I don't know if I ever really care what the soybean looks like. Now, I mean, of course, we don't want Rhizoctonia, Phytophthora, Fusarium, Pythium infections going on in the plant at that vegetation frame, but really, we don't necessarily care about when yield is being made until we get to that reproductive time. So that's it. on top of the fungal infection timing, also times with plant health, because that's when it's very important to make sure that each flower that's being put on that soybean plant is is maintained and turned into a pod. So we have a lot of opportunity out there on the soybean plant. And a lot of that opportunity, 60% of it is aborted or lost throughout that season because of the photosynthetic inefficiencies, because of the nutrient inefficiencies. And a fungicide application helps enhance the ability of that plant to live day to day. So that's the foliar aspect of fungicide. And oftentimes when we talk about that vegetative crop stage, the crops coming out of the ground, typically before the June summer solstice, there's actually a good application of fungicide you can put on 
to help your plants at that stage. It's just that that fungicide needs to go on as a seed treatment. And so fungicide actually can be used season long. It's just that later during the reproductive phase, it's going to happen foliar. And earlier on, it's going to happen vegetatively, but it's actually going to be applied to the seed treatment. The key point of both of those decisions is you need to make the decision before you see the disease. It's really hard to treat a soybean that's already been planted. I, I don't know if you've had any success going back and retreating beans that have been planted, John. Only after hail. Only after hail, yeah. That, that, then you're replanting the whole field, though. Sometimes. <laughs> Thanks, John and Joel. We hope you'll all stay tuned for our next episode where we'll continue answering farmer questions from Commodity Classic. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperford, Director of Ag Technology for Winfield United, and John Zuck, agronomist for Winfield United. The Deal with Yield podcast is produced by Winfield United. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes and thedealwithyield.com.